the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Every time there is a collapse or scandal in the crypto space, this is referred to as a watershed moment. But how many watershed moments will crypto go through before it earns the respectability it so obviously craves? Was the collapse of FTX really one of those watershed moments? It certainly seems so. Crypto exchanges are now either publishing their reserve data or they're planning to. Eight of the 10 largest exchanges now provide proof of reserves, but finding an auditor to sign off on these figures is proving a little more tricky. Audit firms are apparently less keen to get involved in this space than they were in the past. In December last year, Mazars announced it would temporarily pause some of its services to their crypto clients globally. Also late last year, Armonino, an auditing firm for crypto companies such as FTX in the US and Kraken, announced that it was pulling out of the crypto space. Armonino did proof of reserves for Kraken, but were also the auditors for Binance in the United States. Proof of reserves are certainly useful in that they show the customer asset side of the balance sheet, but they give no indication of the overall corporate liability side and hence they give no idea of the solvency of the company. For this reason, after the FTX collapse, there was a rush by investors to get their coins off of exchanges and into self-custody wallets. So how can crypto companies regain public respectability after such a terrible year that saw so many crypto failures? Joining us to discuss this is no stranger to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. It's Vihan Olafia, who is Digital Asset Lead at Mazars in South Africa. Hi, Vihan. Welcome back once again. Give us uh, a bit of context to the announcement made by Mazars in December last year that it was pausing engagement with on certain services with its crypto clients. What was the reason for that? Hi, Kieran. Uh, a pleasure to be on the uh, MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast again. Um, yeah, so 2022 was was definitely not for the faint-hearted. It seems as if the digital asset sector was on fire. And there was a hell of a lot of commotion in the industry after the downfall of FTX that caused panic and chaos in the market to the extent um, that I haven't witnessed before. And of course, as you can imagine, this fear, uncertainty and doubt resulted in various stakeholders, investors, the media, basement bloggers, and even people with zero knowledge about digital assets and those that lack basic financial literacy, jumping to conclusions and misinterpreting information. Now, of course, with the downfall of FTX, many auditors got cold feet, as you can imagine. Some auditors decided to de-risk themselves completely from the industry, whether they were directly or indirectly involved, while other firms increased a level of scrutiny and professional judgment with the onboarding of new clients and its reassessment of its current clients. Other audit firms exited the sector as they didn't believe the risk to be worth uh, the reward. And they saw also what happened with FTX and the repercussions it had for its auditors. Of course, another contributing factor for audit firms pausing certain service offerings or hesitating to stay in the market is a direct result of misinterpretation and misrepresentations. You'll be surprised about the groups and groups of uneducated individuals out there that are perceive a specific report or service offering in an incorrect way due to a lack of experience or expertise, which in turn can be blown completely out of proportion uh, and misrepresented in the media, which of course is a is a concern for, for any auditor and the reputation of that auditor and its clients, especially with the global asset class like cryptocurrency with millions of investors and followers. But I mean, on the flip side, I don't believe that it's wise for those firms to dis, uh, that made the decision to 
to completely de-risk themselves and, and walk away from the industry or, or the technology based on a, a single event. Otherwise, no audit firm would be servicing the banking industry or even construction entities. Blockchain and uh, technology and, and cryptocurrencies has also started to integrate itself into various other aspects of the traditional financial services sector and legacy businesses. And it's not something uh, order can, can actually can, can shy away from or necessarily walk away from uh, if they are looking to, to stay relevant in the future. Okay, uh, understood. Um, proof of reserves may not give the complete picture, but they're certainly better than no data at all. I mentioned at the start that these proof of reserves, they do show the customer side of the balance sheet. But crypto clients would like to know, in light of what happened at FTX, what's on the liability side of the balance sheet? In other words, are these crypto exchanges or these crypto businesses, are they actually solvent? Are we moving to an era of proof of solvency, do you think? And what are the challenges in getting there? What's it going to take to really get full transparency from all of these crypto companies? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a good question. Um, in determining the solvency of a business, you can't rely on a, on a single asset or single line item on the balance sheet to determine or to conclude on the solvency or liquidity of any business. Never mind a virtual asset service provider holding highly volatile assets such as cryptocurrencies. The, the assets, uh, sorry, the assessment rather of solvency goes hand in hand with determining the fair value of, of the assets and liabilities sitting on the balance sheet along with the going concern of the business. And it's important to understand that even with a statutory audit or an audit opinion or audit report that gets issued, it's based on historical data. And even an audit report does not cover the solvency of a business necessarily, but rather addresses the assumption that the entity will be able to continue as a going concern. And the reason why I mentioned going concern specifically is there's been businesses in the past that, that have been solvent but not a going concern, meaning that there's a material uncertainty that the business will be operational for 12 months beyond the date of the audit opinion, irrespective of the fact that the assets fairly valued exceed its liability. So a proof of solvency is also not going to be the silver bullet that everyone is looking for, because this way, rather this, this may be difficult to, to prove on a month-to-month -month basis or a quarter-to-quarter -quarter basis without taking into consideration various aspects, such as um, whether the assets are encumbered, whether there's other commitments and contingencies, whether these assets are provided as security, and there's possibly unrecorded liabilities. And of course, to put that into, into um, perspective or into a practical scenario, based on the available information of FTX, it appeared that it was, it was a fair amount of financial assets in the forms of loans, receivables from counterparties, where the recoverability of those loans were, were in question. So meaning, when you go to an exchange and you put $100 worth of Bitcoin into FTX, you would expect FTX to, to hold $100 dollars worth of Bitcoin on the balance sheet, of course, and have a corresponding liability. But based on the available information, they pass that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies um, onto another entity. Uh, therefore, the customer funds weren't collateralized by the by the actual assets, but the assets of the, the loans or the loans the um, the uh, amounts payable to customers were actually collateralized by loans receivable, which wasn't paid because it was worth less than $100, which essentially resulted in, in that element of counterparty risk. So from their perspective as well, so you need to look at the, the entity that the, the money was loaned to, whether that entity's assets fairly valued exceeded its liability. So 
Those are one of the issues that we identify specifically with FTX. And I mean, a proof of solvency might once again be a step in the right direction or a single tool that is used to determine whether customer funds are safe or collateralized or fully reserved at a specific point in time. But it won't necessarily be the answer to everyone's question to provide them with the relevant assurance that they desperately need. In my view, the solution is twofold transparency and segregation. Customer funds need to be clearly segregated on-chain via the operating system or the backing of the operating system, but also segregation doesn't stop there. I believe that customer funds need to be segregated by legal entity as well, meaning that the customer's assets should not be commingled with corporate assets and corporate liabilities. Case in point, if you look at the ruling and what we saw in the US where the court ruled that Celsius customer funds were deemed to be corporate funds, which could be used to pay corporate debt. So in an ideal world, you would therefore have a separate legal entity such as a trust that holds all of these customer assets and has the corresponding liability on the balance sheet of that trust separate to the operational business and all of the possible realized and unrealized liabilities. Therefore, I would also recommend that a trust in terms of South African legislation, of course, because you can nominate the customers to be beneficiaries of that trust without a type of shareholder uh, structure. The trust can then be subjected to biannually, yearly, uh, quarterly um, uh, statutory orders, not a proof of, of solvency, but an actual audit where auditing standards are being applied that cover aspects and incorporate procedures to address matters that allow the audit to conclude on the solvency, liquidity going concern of that specific uh, exchange or the custodian. And these audited financial statements can, of course, be made publicly available for anyone to view to, to gain their comfort from a, a counterparty risk perspective. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you raised a couple of interesting points there. And as we were watching this whole FTX thing collapse and then the, the post-mortem and the autopsy that happens after one of these events, we start finding out some very interesting things. The first thing is that FTX made a lot of loans. They had invested in about 500 different companies, including like skincare products and Chinese websites, uh, all sorts of things which don't really seem to have much to do with the crypto space. Now, those investments are apparently written down pretty much to zero. There's very, very little chance of recovering anything from them. So there's billions of dollars lost just in that. The second thing is, and I can understand why auditors would be nervous about this, is uh, a lot of these loans that they were making were collateralized in their own house currency, which was called FTT. That, of course, has also gone down to virtually nothing. So as an auditor, you'd be looking at this and you have to make a going concern judgment on this. How on earth could you do that, you know, when you don't really have a recognized currency that, that you can be sure is going to be around a year from now? So, I mean, I, at the beginning, I, I started off by asking, is this a watershed moment? Do you see the FTX collapse as a watershed moment for cryptos? Yeah, sure. I mean, just back to your point, I mean, if you look at a normal company and, and there's a loan receivable there, you need to assess the um, recoverability of that loan. So we refer to the expected credit losses that you need to assess for that loan. And that requires you usually to look at the, the other entity that you're loaning the funds to. And in the situations where the, where the counterparty entity actually holds these multiple investments, 
are those investments, how are they valued, how do how do the auditor ascertain the value, whether those financial statements is, is audited as well. So it goes beyond just looking at a loan and taking it on face value, but doing that extra steps to make sure that that recoverability of loan is not is there. And of course, the loan isn't uh, possibly impaired. But I mean, back to your question about the watershed moments as well. I mean, when these occurrences happen in the past, we've referred to them as, as teething problems. But I don't think something of this magnitude can necessarily be considered as a teething problem. And I therefore do believe this is a, a pure watershed moment that occurred at the end of last year. Of course, very, very unfortunate watershed moment, but but one nonetheless. So the collapse of FTX had significant repercussions from a monetary perspective as there were millions of individuals and businesses that lost millions and millions in a couple of days. Uh, the overall market cap also deteriorated. There was a lack of liquidity affecting individuals and businesses that actually had no direct exposure to FTX. Now, the collapse forced individuals, as you mentioned, to ask themselves the question whether their funds are safe sitting in an exchange or custody solution and, and whether they should perhaps look at self-custodying their digital assets. Of course, that also brings very specific risks as well. Now, having said that, I want to highlight the fact that what happened with FTX was nothing unique to cryptocurrency or digital asset sector. This was an instance of traditional corporate fraud that occurred due to a lack of control, uh, board domination, inexperienced executives, poor corporate governance, and, and greed. Interesting enough, there was something else looming in the background that I'm still busy investigating, but I haven't got a hell of a lot of information of. And 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 maybe if I could just entertain you for a second from an accounting point of view. Um, so it's no secret that I'm a very big advocate of on-balance sheet accounting. So what I mean by this is, is, is under certain circumstances, funds or rather customer funds and, and their corresponding liabilities can be held off-balance sheet in terms of uh, international financial reporting standards and U.S. GOP, uh, GOP stands for generally accepted accounting practices. The SEC released a position paper in early 2022 um, stating that Birch Asset Service providers need to disclose customer funds and corresponding liabilities on the balance sheet at fair value. So as at 31 December 2021, uh, which I believe would have been FTX last financial year in, that position published by the SEC was not yet effective. This means the customer funds and the corresponding liabilities may not have been sitting on the balance sheet. And if it's not sitting on the balance sheet, the auditor looking at the financial statements won't necessarily test those balances as well. So that's one of the big questions that I'm trying to, to, to resolve there or I'm doing a bit of research on. But in addition to that, the PCAOB, that's essentially the oversight body of public accountants in the US, also didn't have oversight of, of FTX because of the fact that it's unlisted entity, despite their public accountability. And this is something that will also definitely change going forward in the regulatory environment, specifically relating to the US. But the overall conclusion is that we need stricter regulations and more regular reporting by these accountable institutions that hold millions and billions of dollars in customer funds. Stakeholders like you and I need to be protected from unethical practices, uh, practices where, um, where funds are being misappropriated or rehypothecated without our consent. Yeah, there have been a few court cases around the world where you've had collapsed exchanges and uh, the liquidators move in. And the, the game then is to try and establish, well, who do these cryptos belong to? The, the, do they belong to the customers? Are they held in trust or do they actually form part of the, the balance sheet of the company that's being liquidated? And I think there was a case in New Zealand that found it's actually held in trust and therefore um, that does not form part of the estate, which can then be made available for distribution to uh, creditors thereafter.
And that's why exactly I make this point of, of segregation, not only on chain, but within that legal entity. And you're, of course, referring to instances that we saw in the U.S. where they essentially said those customer funds are, are deemed to be corporate funds. Um, so they stand in line with the other creditors at the end of the day when the company files for bankruptcy or goes into liquidation. Which is not very good for the customers because uh, that's a breach of the trust that they held or they were promised, I'm sure, when they put that money on deposit. Okay, I mean, maybe we're a little bit over-focused on cryptos as a speculative asset class. I mean, everybody's been talking about, you know, Bitcoin you know, being the most amazing investment uh, since, what, uh, the, the tulip back in Amsterdam days. There's a ton of work going on into blockchain developments for payments, Web3, Metaverse and the like, which don't really involve the speculative side of crypto investment. And I think this is often missed by people. There's a technology and there is the speculative side. And no doubt these all present challenges for auditors in tracking and valuing assets and liabilities when it comes to the crypto space. How do you see this? Yeah, it's interesting that you that you make mention of it as well, um, because Bitcoin was initially created to facilitate peer-to-peer payments over the internet without the need for intermediary. But that electronic form of money has evolved into a speculative asset class with extreme volatility. I can't, however, conclude whether it's a good or bad thing at this point in stage, but um, I can only hope that these new initiatives will also not be overexposed to the same, same negative occurrences we experience in the traditional cryptocurrency sector. It's actually weird saying the traditional cryptocurrency sector, but you're definitely correct. There's some extremely interesting initiatives happening in the payments, Web3 and Metaverse. Um, the payments aspect of blockchain, hyperledgers are definitely one of the areas that I follow closely as I see massive potential in this space. Um, the, the payments use case of, of, with the use of blockchain technology along with stable coins is an area I'm expecting to see a lot of positive regulations uh, that will act as a catalyst in challenging the traditional financial services sector and the banking business model. Um, I've also been very vocal about these private institutions issuing these stable coins and they need to be thoroughly regulated and I mean like bank rate regulations. Uh, to make sure that that what is happening in the background is is of extremely high value and um, that that the, the the interests of those stakeholders are protected. Because if you look at, I mean, the, the top six, I think two of them are stable coins issued by private entities. It's not a, a blockchain protocol or something of that sort. And just illustrates the importance of of of, um, of, of proper corporate governance in those institutions. But you know, these new initiatives definitely have caused some auditors and accountants to scratch their head to, to be able to gain, uh, to gain sufficient uh, reliable evidence, but also for these auditors and accountants to make sense of it. Um, so we saw at the end of, uh, oh, sorry, the, la- the start of, of last year with the DeFi sector that auditors were not necessarily able to rely on third-party on-chain data providers such as open chain, uh, open chain blockchain explorers or whatever the case may be. Some of those smart contracts uh, and the accruals and yields within those smart contracts aren't presented on-chain as on-chain transactions, but the accruals actually are the house in the smart contract, therefore requiring the order to run smart contract blockchain nodes to be able to obtain that relevant information. And I mean, the same applies with these new initiatives when, as you mentioned, um, there's a certain level of expertise required from an auditing perspective, but also more so from a a valuation perspective, valuing these assets, um, these concepts, uh, the tokens, the tokenomics, uh, the businesses, the enterprises, digital assets require that element of expertise. Um, That's why I think there was one circumstance where they approached me um, to be appointed as an auditor of a fund holding NFTs that I just said no thank you to because it was too difficult to value those NFTs. And, And to add to this, 
um, there's, very, there's multiple obstacles. So the comparability of assets. So if you take Jack Dorsey's tweet, for example, it was, it was sold for millions of dollars initially, but when it go, went on to uh, a secondary uh, auction, I think the, the most they could get for it was a couple of thousand dollars. So you need to determine whether there's, a, there's an active market, whether there's track records, whether there's comparable data, whether there's peers. So there is a lot that needs to be taken into consideration there. Um, but tracking of this data is definitely less onerous, irrespective of the pseudo-anonymous characteristics uh, as all transactions executed on a public job blockchain, of course, is immutable, open for anyone to see, and they can follow those transactions. And of course, using public and private key cryptography, uh, it also makes uh, uh, gaining assurance over the ownership uh, much easier for, for the auditor, um, gaining assurance over a wallet and the assets sitting in, in that wallet as well. Yeah, I think what Vianne is talking about there is the, the uh, Jack Dorsey's very first tweet at the launch of Twitter. Uh, it was sold, yeah, you're right, for, for millions of dollars um, as an NFT, a non-fungible token. Uh, and then when it was subsequently resold on the secondary market, it only fetched a few thousand dollars. And I, I think Dorsey did it as a fundraising exercise. He actually put that money towards charity. But it, it does illustrate the difficulty of, uh, you know, th this market is still finding its feet. I think NFT values as a whole are down about 95% from where they were just a little over a year ago. And I can understand auditors, you know, sort of scratching their heads and how do we make sense of this? And, you know, is there a, is there a viable and sustainable business in all of this? I mean, there's a number of studies showing relatively high crypto adoption rates in South Africa, uh, as there are in other countries, particularly where you've got depreciating currencies. You know, the, the RAND, if you go back to March of last year, the RAND is down about 27%. Sorry, that's between peak and trough, 27% uh, drop. Um, it's, it's the same with other currencies, uh, whether you're talking about the Naira in Nigeria or the, the, the Kwacha in Malawi. But from where you sit, uh, let's just turn back to South Africa now. How does South Africa fare in terms of truth of, in reporting when it comes to cryptos? I, I mean, is there a, you know, have the crypto companies here sort of signed on to this code of good corporate governance and ethics? Yeah. So it's, it's actually interesting that you, you say that. I was looking at statistics the other day where I think about 10% of Internet users on a global basis between the age of, I think, 16 and, and 64, 65 um, held Bitcoin or, or other forms of cryptocurrency. And interestingly enough, South Africa was sitting, I think, fourth on the global scale, surrounded by other countries such as Nigeria, Turkey, Argentina, and Brazil. Um, and, and although these cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin does provide investors with a, a deflationary hedge against fiat currencies, I've, I've seen more and more instances where individuals use stable coins as opposed to traditional cryptocurrencies um, for, for that hedge against their local functional currencies. And I think the reason for this is that some cryptocurrencies are, are just too volatile to keep for long periods of time, as, as we witnessed over the last year. Um, and, I've, and I've heard of instances where people in hyperinflationary countries or, or countries with deteriorating functional currencies receive their salaries, uh, immediately purchase uh, dollar-backed stable coins to hedge themselves against that devaluation of their local functional currency, and then slowly liquidate that and pay their, their real-world assets. Um, but yeah, over the last year, we've also witnessed, uh, witnessed cryptocurrency um, spilling over to, to legacy businesses, um, so whereby normal day-to-day -day manufacturer and retail businesses tend to hold cryptocurrency on their balance sheet as long-term investments alongside uh, ETFs or, 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 um, or, or, or other listed shares. 
And I've also seen this is where companies exporting goods and services want to incorporate stablecoins into their payment options, uh, which makes complete sense as stablecoins essentially solve that volatility issue, uh, issue uh, in using cryptocurrencies as a medium of exchange. But of course, it has advantages of moving the same manner in which cryptocurrency does that makes it extremely efficient to transact, uh, to transact with. So cryptocurrencies such as stablecoins allow you to, to uh, transact across borders over the internet in a question of a couple of minutes using the traditional uh, banking sector, uh, of course, which, which takes a couple of days. And there's the cash flow advantage to it as well. And instead of waiting three or four days for your money, you can have it in the same day. Um, and th therefore, we also looked at, at, at uh, accepting stablecoins and, and we were the first um, uh, audit firm in, in Africa accepting stablecoins when we piloted this project back in 2022. And it was extremely efficient from that perspective, uh, especially relating to across-border payments. So I, I truly believe that stablecoins are going to be the success story of 2023. Um, but as I mentioned, regulation surrounding the issuer or the, the, the issuers of these stablecoins is going to be the important part. That's interesting. Are you saying Mazars actually accepts payment? Yeah, so it was a process that we piloted at the end of last year. So it's not official that all clients can accept us in stable coins. It's where we were dealing with other virtual asset service providers and we took payments uh, 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 for cross-border payments. So it was essentially a case where um, they, they paid us in stable coin and it was uh, liquidated almost immediately to hedge ourselves against the, um, the, the dollar exchange rate and then paid into the bank account that same day, uh, all working through OTC days. I mean, from that perspective, cash was in, in our bank account by the end of the day. Um, so from that perspective, it made complete sense. And, and I've had these legacy businesses ask the same type of questions. And, and that is why we wanted to test it to see whether it's feasible and, and whether it can be done from a practical perspective and, of course, to look at the, the, the admin and the practical implications from an accounting perspective as well. Very interesting. I guess that does open up a whole new avenue of discussion about stablecoins. I mean, first of all, are there certain stablecoins that you won't accept? So, so we, we tended to, to stick to, to the, the better known one like USDT and USDC. Algorithmic stablecoins is something, of course, I wouldn't even look at. But we were specifically looking at those uh, dollar stablecoins because of the fact that there was a certain element of trust that went with it. But as well, there was, there was deep liquidity with that. If we get to a situation where you have a stablecoin pegged to the South African uh, ZAR, which is, which is uh, more freely traded on a global basis, that definitely solves that issue uh, of the, the foreign exchange hedge as well but um, there's definitely a big big market for this in in south africa so usdt which is tether and usdc which is usd coin um yeah those would be the the most liquid of the stable coins but then again you've got to take a view on the uh the authenticity or the backing of those stable coins and there has been some question marks about that um particularly about tether uh, not so much about usdc uh, do you take a view on that yeah, correct. And you, you are correct in saying that. But but still, so we wanted to have the broad reach of, of both coins as well and give the options because a lot of people deal these coins. But once again, it was a scenario where as soon as the funds was received, it was essentially um, – when the funds were received, it was essentially liquidated. And, and, and that same – let's call it minute essentially that was received, it was converted to RAND as well. Just for the other elements of risk that's also incorporated with stable coins and, and these stable coins issue, I didn't want to be exposed to any type of risk when, when receiving those stable coins. Okay, so I mean, you weren't you weren't exposed for for more than uh, I guess uh, you know a couple of hours, so there wasn't really much uh, timing risk there. 
Greg, I think probably more like a couple of minutes um, to, to, to... I mean, we are auditors. We, we are trying to, to cover our risks as far as possible. Finally, Wehan, what do you think must happen for cryptos to gain this respectability? I mean, this is how we started off the conversation. How does crypto grow up? Is it regulation? Is it better reporting? Is it more professional management rather than a guy in a Bahamas T-shirt and shorts showing up? Uh, you know, wh- wh- what does it need? Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, think I can comment on the T-shirt and the short pants because I'm sitting here with a T-shirt and short pants <laughs> on. But uh, I do believe it's, it's all of the above, to be brutally honest. The industry needs regulations, but also the right type of regulations. And these regulations need to protect consumers and adequately address the relevant risks in the industry and actively monitor virtual asset service providers and the overall industry. So to be able to do this, regulators need to to educate themselves. Um, They need to understand the technology. They need to educate the general public and and also look at the practical implications when when imposing regulation. It's also important for that matter to understand that there are many types of virtual asset service providers from funds, exchanges, investment platforms, custody solutions, OTC desk, NFT creators, stablecoin issuers, DeFi platforms, people using for cross-border payments and remittances. And, and all of these entities operate on very different ways and have very different risks associated with them. Therefore, trying to regulate them under blanket regulation would be very difficult and, and impractical. And there's always this need um, for more active and adequate monitoring of virtual asset service providers to to ensure compliance. And we see more and more virtual asset service providers in South Africa um, that are in the process of applying for those various uh, category licenses with the FSCA. And also, um, it's it's definitely a step in in the right direction, irrespective of the fact that we haven't received a hell of a lot of guidance from the regulators in terms of what what classes of of licenses will apply to these virtual asset service providers. But, I mean, finally, to bring the conversation basically full circle is, is all virtual asset service providers need to be subjected to statutory orders by credible auditors in the relevant uh, with, with relevant experience uh, and, and, and of course, and it's interesting as well, everyone thinks that every company in the world needs to be, uh, to be audited, but it isn't the case. Just in certain jurisdictions, the regulations might require an audit. Many jurisdictions and, and, and countries out there, they don't specifically require audits for these un- unlisted entities. And of course, that requires oversight of the auditor's regulating body in those various jurisdictions as well. Um, but funny enough, the only persons that can demand exchanges to be audited or to raise the question with these exchanges, um, whether they are being audited or not, are, are the customers of these exchanges. Um, and for the customers to, to ask the questions, because there's a lot of customers of these virtual asset service providers that have no idea whether their virtual asset service providers have auditors or, or whether they are being audited. So that is going to be extremely important as well going forward. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. And, and, you know, the fact that Mazars is not completely pulled out of the space, just some of your services. And I think one of the other things that is becoming apparent is you have these different auditing standards. You know, you've got GARP, generally accepted accounting procedures in the United States, uh, whereas we in South Africa, we apply IFRS, which is the International Financial Reporting Standards. I think that's what it stands for. And they have they have different standards in terms of things like revenue recognition and uh, valuation of leases and so on. Which makes, you know, what are you actually looking at? You know, if you're an American company under GARP standards, yes, they, they, they are trustworthy, but they're, on, they, they, they're open to more judgment than um, elsewhere in the world. 
Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but applying a U.S. golf would open the financial statements up to a certain element of, of judgment and risk. I think it's just sets of rules that have been applied, and as long as they consistently applied on various entities in, in that jurisdiction, it'll make sense. But, of course, these accounting frameworks weren't created having cryptocurrency in mind. Fortunately, cryptocurrency and, and other digital assets fit well into financial uh, international financial reporting standards. With U.S. GARP, it wasn't that much because with U.S. GARP, you couldn't fair value your digital assets. Uh, you could only carry it as cost as intangible asset because you weren't able to argue that it was inventory because you can't have an intangible inventory item on, on the balance sheet. But, I mean, anyone, any accountant with the relevant expertise looking at a U.S. GARP set of financial statements would understand that is some of the limitations that are currently in place. But, of course, that, that was the requirement for the SEC to, to ask for an adjustment and to and uh, for, for, for those compiling the financial statements to actually disclose those customer assets liabilities at fair value. But interestingly enough, I think the um, International uh, Accountancy Board of, in the U.S. are also looking to bring out a standard specifically dedicated uh, to cryptocurrencies to, to make sure that they are across the board treated and accounted for exactly the same. Um, and and there is, is, is true transparency between these uh, between these uh, different entities out there. Of course, the the auditing standards on the flip side is, is is less difficult to apply because auditing is auditing whether I'm auditing a manufactured retail business or a, a, a financial house or a, a digital asset, uh, virtual asset service provider. The the, the uh, uh, policies and and the standards uh, applicable to any audit applies to these same entities, uh, irrespective. Great stuff. Vihan Olafia, Digital Asset Lead at Mazars. Thanks very much for joining us. And I think this is a fast evolving space. So we're going to need to stay on top of this. And uh, no doubt we'll be speaking to you as the year progresses. There's a lot going to happen this year in the crypto space. I can feel it. Yeah, definitely. But looking forward to it. And I'm, 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 I look forward to, to being on the podcast again with you, Karen. Thanks, Vihan. For listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.